Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The only way to become a leader at something, only way is to be obsessed. Time's infinite. You can dedicate as much time as you want to something you love if you really love it. And if you don't really love it, you're going to find ways to get out of it. If you're talking about disrupting a space or being a superstar within your own space, you just have to be... Today, my guest is Steven Potosky, CEO and founder of The Luxus Group. He has owned and managed over 50 luxury properties and hospitality assets with a value of over $100 million in six different countries. There are only about five people on earth that operate in the luxury real estate space at this level, and Steven is one of them. Raising $100 million is already an incredible feat. How do you raise $100 million in six years? Whatever your business is, whether you're cutting hair or taking out garbage or raising $100 million, and I'll get to how I think someone could do it now, you have to love it. And people can see passion, feel passion. To scale this particular business model is very, very hard. And I don't mean to discourage, but there's only like five of us in the world that ever got to this size. There was about 50 of us the problem with scale is most people and the biggest challenge was welcome to success story i'm your host scott clary the success story podcast is part of the hubspot podcast network they've been supporting the show for over two years now and when it comes to running an incredible business hubspot's got your back now if you're an entrepreneur you know that nothing matters more than generating revenue but sales people aren't just closing deals they're tracking down leads they're forecasting growth they're whipping up reports, managing contacts, creating content, crunching numbers, the list of tasks goes on and on. With Q4 around the corner, there's a better way to win. It all starts with the new HubSpot Sales Hub. Now, with the HubSpot Sales Hub, your data, tools, and teams are fully linked inside a smart and highly customizable platform that feels good to use. It's easy. Turn prospects into pipeline and close your deals all in one place. Plus, sequences and smooth workflows help reps streamline tasks and spend more time on what they do best, connecting with customers. With Sales Hub, closing big deals is simple. Try it for yourself at hubspot.com sales. So the biggest... I think event in my life that kind of put me on a path of entrepreneurship was my, my family, my parents. So I don't, I feel like in life, um, people use luck, I think quite loosely. I feel like there's not a lot of luck in the world. It's kind of what you create of it. And the more you, more opportunities you put yourself in, the more luck that comes your way. But the lucky thing in my life was that my parents were entrepreneurs. Now they weren't always, my parents had me at a very young age. They were um, high school sweethearts, you know, 18, 17 years old. So it was a very young age and, and 
they, of course, they say I was planned, except just three or four years early, <laughs> and so clearly not exactly planned for that age. You know, and they, as a result of having me, um, they stayed together, they have a super strong marriage, it's been very inspiring, but the most inspiring part was not only having me, they had my sister two and a half years later, three years later, and then they were working. They couldn't go to college, they couldn't really achieve their their dreams of education and post-secondary things they had in mind. So they just went and put their head down and worked. And uh, as, a, as a child, you're kind of blissfully unaware, and you just watch this hard work in action, but you just assume that everyone does. You don't realize that most people don't work 80 hours a week for a job, let alone when they become an entrepreneur and you live and breathe it for every hour you're awake and when you're asleep. And the most impactful one for me, and I've shared this story only a couple times before, but I was uh, eight years old, so it would be 1988, and um, it was, uh, I can't remember, it was fall or something like that, and there was this man in our, in our living room, and, or the kitchen table rather, and they were signing documents. All these papers were on the, the table and signing documents, and I was eight-year-old kid playing, doing whatever, and then when he left, I asked my folks, I said, you know, mom and dad, what, what was he here? I said, well, he's, he's the banker. I said, okay, well, what's, what's a banker? And then he explained that, and I said, well, what was he doing? They're like, oh, we were taking a second mortgage on our house, I'm like, okay, what's a mortgage? And they explain a way to free of capital. And, and there's the house my parents built themselves, like general contracted themselves, everything else. Well, what's the money for? We're buying a business. And um, that was like the, the trigger, okay, what's buying a business? And it was then they started to explain. They bought a business that year in 89, and then they built up to become a really successful um, business. It was retail grocery stores. And it was amazing watching front row seat to entrepreneurship in action and people risk-taking the good years, the bad years, the ups and downs, you know, and I think that just was completely ingrained in my mindset that I've never wanted to do anything but become an entrepreneur. Now, for me, that was like my career choice when I was nine years old. And, Dude, that's uh, not and then as a result, what's that's that? not normal at all. That's not normal. Not, <laughs> no, no one thinks was, that way at nine. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And I just, so, I mean, you start with selling marbles when you're a teenager and like you just, you just start doing things because you start to follow along. And my parents were always great. They let us know what was going on in the business and, they worked hard, but they explained why they weren't around. And I just felt it was a, it was a great upbringing. And um, as a result, we started you know, first businesses kind of in late teens and, and, uh, and then it snowballed to where we'll get to where today, but never had a job and never got a real like paycheck from um, uh, like a company ever before. It's always been from our own business endeavors. And, and that for me was the most formative event in my life for sure at a young age, which kind of put us on the path to entrepreneurship. Wow, so never had a job, never ever <laughs> had a job. Not, Dude, not one, not one. So, yeah, okay, was, so what's the first version of entrepreneurship? What's the first thing you did that was like substantial? We're not talking about like a Pokemon card arbitrage or something <laughs> like that. Like, 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 uh, like hey, that's other, a big other, deal. It is a big deal, especially now it's a big deal. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, first one for me, which I'd say was meaningful enough. It wasn't like make a, like a living off of it, but in the summers in college to help pay, create some extra cash and pay some bills. I went on a golf scholarship in the U.S., um, as we discussed, we're both Canadian, so going to the U.S. and play NCAA was like a super cool experience. And um, a scholarship helped fund the majority of it, but it's always good creating some extra cash. So started a pub crawl business and basically just rented yellow school buses in the summer, sold all my friends' tickets to come in the school bus, and, and then we just drive it around to pubs, you know, pubs slash bars, nightclubs, and did that every summer for three summers. And it wasn't like, again, tens of thousands of dollars. It was For me, it was thousands of dollars, but that was a huge chunk of money at that time. And um, we ended up, uh, you know, when college was wrapped up and started the next chapter, which is where it got significant quickly, it was like the greatest learning because you're in charge of everything. You know, the logistics, the sales, the accounting. One of my you know, 
best buds. Uh, he got really drunk one night and he had all the money in his pocket and he passed out on the bus and someone stole all the money. So we lost all of our money one time. So it's like, okay, have a little safe or a place to protect your asset. And it was just a really cool experience to do that was completely me. And, uh, and again, we're not talking millions of dollars, we're talking thousands of dollars, but it was, I think, feel like it was all encompassing. Like it was a fully, the full vertical of running a business. It was a lot of fun. Like it was a good experience to kind of take you to the next chapter. So, okay, so you, you had a taste of entrepreneurship. You had some success with that, but um, what, what's next? So yeah. when did you decide to, is, did you go into real estate very young or did you have like other, like more traditional like businesses where you're selling a product, you're selling a widget, you're selling a service? No, good, very good question. My first real business was actually exiting when I left college. And there's a long story, but the very abbreviated version is my parents were in the retail grocery business and had an opportunity to participate in that business. And it wasn't, um, it was actually a buy-in structure. Um, we had to get approval from the franchisor that ultimately was the brand behind it and had the ability to buy 25% of the company at 21 years old. Fully financed, of course. I didn't have $10 to my name, um, but financed at reasonable interest rate. And that was my first business. And it was actually like trial by fire. Because at 21 years old, had this business myself. Um, so I have partners, my family of partners, but they weren't involved in the day-to-day. -day. Amazing mentors, but it was kind of like, go get them. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was an awesome journey. It was 250 employees out of the gate to $20 million a year business. Um, you know, complex you know, logistics, and it was just the best experience. And for me, by going to that level that quickly, you learn a lot very fast. And because you're the youngest within kind of the, that career and you didn't want the, the brand of just being like the boss's kid coming to take over the business. I'd been working there for, you know, 10 years, 12 years in advance, and this was a whole new operation. That was like the immediate big jump into a business that I really loved. Now, when we, we'll shift to real estate six years later when we got into that side. But this was a, an amazing experience to completely operate independently under a franchise brand and learn a high volume business with hundreds of employees and and try to actually make it work. Because the first year we got like crushed. Like I thought I like single handedly so bankrupted my family. Ask, like how many how many mistakes did you make? What was the, the walking through the worst mistakes you made after financing a, a, like a hundred plus employee business with no <laughs> business experience? Like I'm I'm. I did. Well, I'll, I'll give you two good lessons on this journey. The first one was um, that first year, and I lost over a million dollars. I mean, just say it out loud. It was like it's hard for me to like fathom in a business. And, I, and for our family, I was like material. Like I was very, very, very significant. And it was a um, – and I say I lost. I lost. I was the person leading. And I thought we were actually – in my mind, I thought, well, we're going to make a million dollars the first year. How can you not? And uh, we realized, also, you see the first quarterly statement, and it's like $350,000 in the red. And I'm like, oh, my God. And, and then you kind of slowly start chipping away. Like, it starts a little less and less and less. And it was $1.1 million this first year. And I was like, oh, like, I, it wasn't like a panic attack. but it's You like, were 1.1 in debt. You in debt. It. Well, no, okay, we, no, I was already... Way in debt, and then I yeah, lost yeah, sorry, sorry, a million sorry, sorry. dollars on you top. You lost a million year one. Okay, gotcha. Exactly, gotcha. a million year one, and it was a, it was scary because I, you know, I'm like, okay, well, I just totally screwed up my chance. I had so many people relying on me and helping me and supporting me and mentoring me, financing me, and then I, I literally crapped the bed. And um, and fortunately, those people rallied around me. And the biggest, best advice I got was from my dad and also the president of the company similar lines of advice. It says, you know, Steve, I think you're doing a good job running the store, but you're not doing a good job running the business. 
And for me, that was a big formative event in my mind. It's like, well, what is the difference? Well, running the operations of a company is different than running the business of a company. And I realized at that time that I can't be every employee's best friend and be on the floor doing all the, all the things just to build the credibility. And that was a very important part of that first year and leave the business. The business itself is coming out of the weeds looking down upon it holistically and saying, okay, are, where are we losing money? Where are we making money? How do we adjust margins? How do we protect the costs? Um, understanding those aspects. So for me, that was like this huge epiphany in my life. And I still talk to my team. We just finished a meeting on it right now. I said, I feel like we're, we're, we're running this, the day-to-day, but we're not running the business right now. And we all have to come up together and be like, where are we missing? Why are we not as successful as we think we are? And then immediately from that point, and I needed lots of help with that, as you always do, you know, in life. And I have no problem asking for help. I've been asked, you know, like, who can help me learn to run a business better than I'm doing? And we all of a sudden broke even a quarter, and you made a bit of money, and they made a bit more money, and then it started to snowball. And it took, you know, a year and a half to kind of get out of the hole, and then we started to make, you know, good income for a number of years. But that was my biggest probably learning that early in my career is, like, there's a big difference on running your your the operations of your company versus running the business of your company. And it's uh, um, when you, you can do both symbiotically is when you, the yeah. people that are most successful. Um, so you, you were, so first business, you were more or less profitable at the, like the, by two years you were profitable. You, Correct. you yep. figured out it how took, to become profitable. Yep. Took two years. Um, now I don't like to jump around, but I think it's also important. You just mentioned to your team, we got to figure out how to do this. I think that it's already tough enough for the CEO to do this. So lessons that mm-hmm. you learn at that point in your life, how do you bring mm-hmm. up a whole team? I just don't want to forget about because I know I'm going to forget about this point later on. Yep. So how did you bring up a whole team? How can you bring up a whole team so that everybody is not so – they understand the importance of the day-to-day, but they have a holistic view of the business, and you get everybody on board with that? You know, it's a great question. I have to think back to, gosh, 20 years ago now when that those, those early years were, but I, it was a – probably being the biggest thing is probably a bit more transparent about where we actually were at. I think as a leader, we quite often work so hard to shield our key team members from the bad news in order to keep like a positive vibe and a positive stuff. And, and there is certain bad news that should be shielded and it's your job to carry as the entrepreneur, not the, the manager's job to carry. But I think when we shared it to say, here's the reality of where we're at, I wanna be open and honest and vulnerable with the key, not everyone on the team, but call it your key or inner circle of leadership. And then say, collectively, how do we help each other get from this point A to where we want to get, you know, point B, C, D, knowing the actual reality. And I think when people see lots of volume and sales and success, and it seems like there's success, but they don't actually know behind the scenes. So I've never been good, I, to be perfectly honest, I still struggle with it sometimes, is sharing the bad news and mm-hmm. with my team, because I feel like it's my job to protect them as a leader of the business, but I sometimes find through that protection, I'm actually hurting them, because I'm not giving them the actual real truth and transparency to make help them make the most informed decisions to move on. And then they have a different level of transparency for their team and down below as it kind of works its way through a larger organization. And so that, for me, that was a really big, big deal. It was hard at the time is that you feel like you're kind of a failure, right? Hey, we lost, I didn't tell them how much money we lost, um, but it was like, we lost money. So they didn't run for the hills. <laughs> this ship is sinking, I'm jumping, yeah. I'm off. But it was uh, how do I help get out and how do I rally around our, our team or my leader together? Because they showed vulnerability, but they also showed you know, a desire to work towards a positive outcome. So I think that for me, that was the, I lifted everyone up and I do believe at that point, we really rallied together and we corrected some things very, very quickly, like within a quarter that we just kind of had our heads buried in the sand for the first four quarters of the business. And that, that helped for sure. 
Um, so after, so, okay. So business profitable. Um, yep. how far did you grow that? What was the, what was the story with that business? You bet. We ended up having two stores is like about a $50 million a year uh, business. We peaked at like 450 employees, um, but it was a franchise business and the franchisor um, called mid 2000, five, six, seven, eight, somewhere in there. They started to buy out franchisees and make their stores uh, corporate, corporately owned, kind of under one. Uh, we're under the same brand, but instead of, instead of having franchisees, they would have all corporately owned stores. So we had a successful operation at that time, and um, it was going quite well. But we saw the writing in the wall that this franchisor had a, a desire to have everything consolidated. So we we assumed we didn't know for sure, but at some point they would come knocking, looking to buy out our business because they had started doing that in the east, like eastern Canada, and making their way across the business, across the country. Sobies, you know, I've seen Sobies, I'm sure, in Toronto course, and everything yeah. else. Yeah, <laughs> yes, sir. Sobies yeah. family. Very ambitious, great, you know, Canadian success story for sure. But it's they had a, a vision that wasn't aligned with franchisees at the time. So I don't fault them for it. We just wanted to make sure our business was successful and in a good position to sell when our time came. And what I didn't want as my family, my parents would be um, retiring, is I was still paying off my my financing, like my bill. Like I, st I wasn't going to leave with a lot of money. I leave with enough to be able to. Um, make some decisions on the next chapter of my life, um, but nothing that's like even close, nor would I, would I retire in my mid-20s, but it was like a, a fraction. So what I started in 2006 is a new business. 2007, we're technically celebrating our 15th anniversary this quarter, and uh, it was this real estate business. And, um, and I'll, I'll get to the story which kind of kicked it off, but that's what started the, um, the next chapter. And it was really great because four years later, 2011, Sobeys, or the grocery store chain, came knocking and bought out our business. So you, have really to, good. you have to sell? Um, basically, yes. You know, they control the leases. And it wasn't a forced sale. It was very amicable and good, you know, good, good dialogue to come with a fair offer. But because they control the leases, you know, leases are expiring. They could effectively remove you. And, you know, we didn't want any type of fight. It's like just pay something that's fair. But what made it easy for me to exit was that I had another business operating. Mm -hmm. A business I really, really loved and had a really bright future with. And I didn't want to wait until it's sold and then try to start and be a few years. So it was kind of like four years. I got married, had my first child, and I'll talk about the, you know, what kind of brought us into Luxus. It was a crazy time. Like it was the hundred and, it was every waking minute of your life was dedicated to the businesses and the family and, and kind of like survival mode. But when we sold the business and the rolled in and the ex other company, we could like kind of supersize it much quicker. Um, it really created this accelerated growth plan that has you know, brought us to where we are today. And it's been a pretty, pretty fun ride. Okay, so um, how did you? Okay, so as you're as you're exiting Sobeys, talk to me about the other business you're starting. So, so for me, this is I guess the storyline that comes with this one is that um, I think like all entrepreneurial endeavors and the majority they come from a problem you're just trying to solve. And for us, in particular as a family, we're just trying to solve our own problem. And our problem at the time was that my wife and I we love travel, and we had our first child, and we were, she was pregnant, and we loved hotels. You know, hotels was kind of our you know. We love just traveling around and doing things was awesome, but a baby in a hotel is not fun. It's not enjoyable. It's not, it's, it's expensive. It's uncomfortable. It's congested. <laughs> it takes yeah. the joy, takes the romance out of it. Like it's just not the, it's not the same experience. And so we said, well, what else could we, what else could we do? Cause we said one thing we're making a vow, like before having that child is like, we are still going to travel. A lot of our friends like literally shut down travel for 18 years of their, of their kid's life, any type of reasonable, um, experiences because they're raising their children. I said, I think that it's important for our kids to see us travel as a family and mom and dad collectively, because that's how this whole thing got started. It was a strong bond with mom and dad. 
And so we said, okay, we're gonna keep doing this, but the question is how. And uh, we thought, well, what if we bought our own second home? Well, we didn't have any money yet. We hadn't sold the grocery stores. That was four years down the road, so we had no money. We thought renting, but renting was creating this inconsistent experience. You'd rent a vacation home, and this is like 15 years ago when VRBO, like the pictures you saw online, did not meet up to the experience when you arrived at the property. It was just, it was different, you know? The, the, the rental models got a lot more sophisticated. I'll talk a bit about that later as it's part of our business now. We said, well, wouldn't it be amazing if we had a collection of personal vacation homes? So, like, we had our own. And that's just like the, the fantasy land is that, okay, um, if we had 10 homes and we had beach homes and Florida homes and Hawaii homes and Tuscany homes and we could use them as an equity owner of those homes, but also a chance to um, get that consistent hospitality experience every time. So this was like the fantasy. And this was late 2006. And then so this thought, is like, you know what? But this is like the the concept of Airbnb before Airbnb, like you own the house and then you're renting it out to somebody, but you want an experience that you're offering and delivering. Very similar. We actually, Airbnb started 2008, so we technically started a year before them. And the concept was around shared assets. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Today's show is brought to you by 1Password. Now listen, we all have that one friend who's constantly forgetting passwords and needing help to get into their accounts. I have a solution. It's called 1Password. 1Password is the award-winning password manager trusted by millions of users and companies like IBM and Slack to keep logins, credit cards, and other private info safe in an encrypted vault that only you can access. No more sticky notes with passwords or using the same password everywhere. I've been using 1Password for a year now, and I can't recommend it enough. 
It saves me time from having to reset passwords and gives me peace of mind knowing my info is secure. With convenient features like automatic password generation and login autofill, 1Password takes the hassle out of passwords. You can use it on all your devices, iOS, Android, Mac, PC. Everything syncs seamlessly. And with top-notch security audits and encryption, your data stays private. So do yourself a favor and check out 1Password today. Go to onepasswordcom Clary and get a two-week free trial. Let 1Password remember all of your logins for you so you can remember what really matters. That's onepasswordcom Clary for two weeks free. So where we ultimately landed is instead of renting, um, and, and again, Airbnb didn't even exist, it was like, what if we brought together a group of owners, and this is nothing new, people have bought homes together and they share them and they find a way to syndicate their time, but no one's done it well at scale. So for us, we said, okay, we went to 18 friends and family, I think we went to like 25, but 18 friends said yes, and said, I got this really cool idea, we're gonna raise 200 grand a person, roughly, we're gonna raise three and a half million bucks, we're gonna buy three homes. We're gonna buy a lake home, a beach home, and a desert home. And then us, us 18 people are gonna share those homes. So you get two months, you get two months, I get two months, blah, blah, blah. We'll manage it um, as a kind of corner of our desk because we had a different business operating at the time. And, uh, and people are like, that sounds awesome. That's kind of what I want. I want to have variety and familiarity and consistency. And I want to have equity above all else. See, people wanted to have skin in the game, not just renting homes and just watching disposable cash kind of be burnt away. And uh, we raised this money and we didn't, and we, my big commitment to the time was we're gonna have a concierge and an asset management team and this office that we had like, like zero, not like one iota of it. And people were literally giving me checks to my personal name. We didn't have a bank account set up yet. And so I found this, other people had the same problem we did in life. They wanted to travel differently. And so we ended up setting up a bank account and setting up a business, then we leased an office and we hired our first couple employees and they were from Fairmont Hotels and Resorts, which you know well, and it's a, you know, to bring on like a really strong hospitality experience behind it. And uh, we launched Luxus Vacation Properties, which is now a brand under the Luxus Group. And just for clarity, Luxus is Latin for luxury. So um, that was where the name came from, like Luxury Vacation Properties. And then it, um, we entered the you know, subprime issue with the, the Great Recession, but in, in Alberta in particular, the economy was still pretty strong. We raised, ended up raising like $100 million in the next six years, and we bought 50 properties around the world, mostly North America, and then we went on this really incredible growth spurt, which just, we'd have like people every week buying in, buying in more capital, more capital. We'd buy properties and just continue to scale and scale and scale to the point where we did have a 25-person you know, team and beautiful office and great people and it's just been an, an, an awesome and that's that was kind of iteration one we'll get into the, some of the bigger stuff we're doing now but that's what got it all going just like a seed of an idea our own personal problem sharing it with passionately with friends and family and then people jumped on the bandwagon and then figure it out as you go like just figure it out as you go i love it man and and i think that you know it's first of all raising a hundred million dollars is is already an incredible feat so we'll talk about <laughs> bigger stuff as well Thanks. but Say somebody wants to go into real estate, right? And they do want to do something similar to you. It's a very, uh, it seems like a replicable business model. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's a lot of uh, stress and nuance and things that you have to figure out. I mean, you figured them out with uh, Sobe's background. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's not like you had like mm -hmm. a 20 totally. years real estate. But um, if somebody would ever want to do this, okay, the friends and family makes sense. You, you raised 3.5 from friends, yeah. friends and family. But say you do want to scale up a business of this sort. How do you mm -hmm. raise a hundred million in six years? What credentials? What is it? Just a sales pitch? Is it a sales pitch plus a deck? Is it 
having a real estate agent on your staff? Is it what is it that convinces people that you're the right person to give a hundred million to? Yeah, you know what? I have no, I, if any of my original founders listen to this, I want to say thank you because I have no idea why they gave me the money. Like literally I did not deserve <laughs> the ability to have those proceeds in my hand. I had no experience related to buying real estate, managing real estate. Um, but I think what they found, and aside from being extremely passionate about it, and this wasn't a business to be profitable, like it took us six, seven years to figure out how the business should make money and what the right margins are, because it was really about just an idea of doing something really cool and fun and and uh, something we can all be excited about. Um, and so that was like, I think that people bought into that is like the passion. I think that whatever your business is, whether you're cutting hair or taking out garbage or raising $100 million, and I'll get to how I think someone could do it now in my space, is that you have to love it. And people can see passion, they feel passion. They can see, you know, they can see if you're happy and excited, but they can feel passion. And for me, you know, if it doesn't come through today, like I was, I was very, very excited about that because this would change how my family would travel and how my kids would be raised and we'd grow up. And I only had to put in 200 grand. I put in my 200 grand, same with other 15 uh, eight or 17 people. And my parents put in 200 grand, so there were 16 additional shares. And that's how we got to that point. So I think to scale it though, it is very, now I'm gonna give you two, two angles here. And, this is, and they're very tactical in terms of like, if someone was going down this road. To scale this particular business model is very, very hard. And I don't mean to discourage, but there's only like five of us in the world that ever got to this size. There was about 50 of us pre-Great Recession. The problem with scale is most people use lever, like you know, obviously debt financing to scale something. And then when there is a crisis in the world, which we obviously experienced in 2008 to 10, you don't have wiggle room. We did the entire 100 million on cash. So if we actually levered it, but we never levered any of it, we could have $200 million in real estate. But we took a extremely conservative approach, which gave people a lot of comfort, that you, can, you can't lose all their money and get blood away through mortgage costs and interest costs. So I think it's like creating a safe environment for people to park capital if you're, if you're new to the space. I think that would be number one lesson. So okay, I wanna go buy a home and syndicate with five friends. Okay, how am I gonna make sure I'm gonna get some money out of it? Are you buying right? Is it a property I'm going to enjoy? Is it, can, you bleed, can you bleed the money away? Like, is it sustainable? So we, we built a model that was very sustainable. So that was kind of number one. Number two, you need to have the energy to hustle. And, and I think that a lot of people are good hustlers, but a lot of people think they are, but they don't really realize it literally is a live, breathe, eat, sleep thing to get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clients through the old way. Now it's, I wouldn't say it's easier, it's just different. Where we talked about using social and different channels. For me, none of that existed in 2007, eight. It was like literally coffee shops. Mm -hmm. Coffee shop, coffee shop, coffee shop. And I would make a phone call to not cold call. It would just be like a network of a network and you just, you know, you'd share your passion and dream and 50% of the time they would do it and 50% they wouldn't. So that amount of energy, I think a lot of people are, um, sometimes don't have like the, the staying power, like aren't really in it for the long game. They look for the quick win. And people see through quick wins, especially when you're in, immature and early in your career. And I was immature and early in my career at that time. And I didn't want to make it look like I'm trying to make a quick buck. I was in it for the long game. And so if people see that, I do think it builds a lot of credibility for someone that's actually, saying, okay, this person's here to stay. They're shoulder to shoulder with me. I know they're not making a ton of money, but they're making some money so they're sustainable. I'll, I'll stake this person, like I'll jump in with them. And so that's how I think if someone starting any business obviously helps of using social and better channels these days can help accelerate that growth. The best way I think from a real estate perspective isn't necessarily the model we started originally. I think the best angle to make money in real estate right now in vacation, 
our single property or, or multi-property um, STR or short-term rental funds or rental properties. Short-term rentals, and I'll go down this, you know, I'll, I'll take as far as you want to go down this one, but from a real estate perspective, short-term rentals have been so um, disrupted the last decade, all due to Airbnb. So you go pre-Airbnb, so pre-2008, and really 2010-11 before it became a thing, they were unregulated. Everyone had vacation rentals, or, and they could rent them out, and there was no issues. Airbnb came in the space. They completely disrupted the space. They went from zero rooms to six million rooms in a decade. That's five, four times the size of the largest hotel chain in the world, Marriott. And now governments were forced to react to them, and they started regulating. So what happened is, is that people would regulate. Um, so whether it's, it's Florida or Toronto, you probably saw when you were there, they regulated Airbnb, and Airbnb uh, hosts were kicked out across the board. Vancouver, every major market effectively in the world has gone through it or is going through it. But we're at this neat, unique tipping point where people want to stay in these homes, these vacation rentals, um, but they, uh, um, they want to stay in them, but they were unfamiliar with the quality of the brand because VRBO kind of beat that up for so many years, having this inconsistency. Airbnb has made it not like totally consistent, but a lot better. So I think a great way with regulation in place now, there's clarity on where you can buy. You don't have to worry about being kicked out of your property like or not being able to short-term rent it and finding an asset that's in your like Fort Lauderdale or in, I mean, a lifestyle destination, Southern California, the desert, you know, out of Mexico, whatever it is, you can like totally DIY it and do it yourself. And that's super fun. You can make multiple five figures, if not six figures off a property by owning a singular asset and you can syndicate it with your friends. So you get your buddies to throw capital in, you're debt free or you have very little lever and you can go immediately start making tens of thousands of dollars. Like what business can you do that? And all the platforms are there. Airbnb platform, management platforms, they're all exist. And I, people are getting into the space heavy and we're going to hear a lot about it. Those that are early stage will do better simply because um, putting a foothold in certain markets will help people grow and you can start to accelerate and, and scale. So it's very long winded answer to that. Sorry about that. No, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> don't, don't apologize. Go deep. It's a, it's a smart, a smart group of people listen to this. So go as deep as you want to go. Like, um, <laughs> okay. So if I'm thinking about this, I just, I just ask questions. Like if I want to get into this, I always like, yep. okay, if I start this business, what would I do? Or how do I think through this? So, and I want to clarify something. When you think about uh, short term rentals, you can do on Airbnb, but I'm sure you can also do private as well. You don't have to use Airbnb totally. if you can market yeah. them yourself. So, if yeah. we look at the opportunity, so say we look at, uh, buy, we buy one piece of property. We we raise money. We buy one one piece of property. We buy one property, yep, and yep. <laughs> you can you kind of have three options. You can either do, you can rent it out like regular, mm -hmm. rent it out on a on mm -hmm. an annual lease. You can do Airbnb or you can do like a private short term rental. Yep. Give me a value on that property, and then include the breakdown of the management fees and all the other. Uh, ancillary things and then walk me through what somebody uh, you can help, like walk me through the math to what sure. somebody could make on this kind of investment if they and then they sure. can sort of multiply that at scale to understand the potential if they did this as a as a living yeah perfect and thanks for clarifying i i use airbnb too loosely it really is str renting so short-term rentals because you might um, when you have a property, you can list it on any platform you want, plus privately rent it. So you can Airbnb, HomeAway, VRBO, and Steve Potaski Rentals. So there's no, they don't have, um, unless you get to the ultra luxury, and usually they don't even have exclusivity, most of them have no exclusivity. So you can list it on every platform around. Airbnb are most familiar with it, but it really should be short-term rentals. So from a math perspective, I'll just use like a, a round number. Let's say a million dollar property. Let's say you put in 
500 grand and you and you get a mortgage for 500 grand you know like i'm not going to get into like the debt financing side that's a different story we no, can no. talk about it later if you want but let's say a million yeah. bucks is your investment your operating costs are usually around depending upon your market five to nine percent kind of somewhere in that range so let's just say for a rough number sixty thousand dollars and that would be property taxes insurance um you know replacement power utilities everything else um, add another couple percent for management fees, assuming you don't self-manage. You'll pay someone on the ground to manage for you. So you need a house checker and someone to check the guests in and you know, fix the TV antenna when it's not working or whatever it might be. So you're, you're under 10% overall operating cost and probably closer if, you're, if you buy in a low-cost market that doesn't have like, like California is very expensive. High cost of power, high property taxes, but you can generally get a higher rate, a higher cap rate out of it, but it doesn't sometimes necessarily, there's, a, there's an imbalance between like what you can get from a cap rate or a, a rental rate versus cost. But let's just say six to 8%. You can create, let's say $200,000 in revenue on that property. So that would be hustling. So let's just say you're gonna rent that million dollar property out. You're gonna rent it 250 nights at 800 bucks a night, somewhere in that range to get you $200,000 in revenue. Net out your $70,000 in cost, you've got $130,000 in, in net revenue. It's a 13% cap rate. Like that's, and not including appreciation on the asset, which is obviously part of your long-term play. Is you're really, your goal is to build it to not actually sell the properties. And, and ideally, you build it, we have a portfolio of several of these, and they appreciate over time as well. So that would be like, a, I would say a low teens would be like a good solid cap rate within the short-term rental space. Certain safer markets like Hawaii and stuff, your cap rate is going to be probably more like five to seven percent. But the real estate market is so safe and so stable, people will take a lower cap rate in those markets. Your operating costs are going to be higher, and just the kind of the delta between revenue and that, or your, your NOI or net operating income will be smaller. But it's safe. You know, Hawaii is okay. a year-round market, and you're generally not going to have a big reset like Florida saw 12 years ago or something else. So. Pretty good money, and if you're really good at it, and if you want to take a little bit more risk, and then if you lever it, that'll obviously juice your returns further. If you want to take a bit more risk, you could get mid-high teens. I mean, what business mm -hmm. can you immediately, for, I mean, now still, you need capital. Like, you need some money out of the gate to get it going. It's not like it's, um, but you're not so getting. You, you, would, you put, would you put 500 down on a million dollar property? Would that be something that you'd feel safe? Because you were talking about before, I yes. could have gotten twice as much. I could have gotten twice as much value at a property, but I don't want to expose myself to that much risk. So that's why you do, okay. Yeah, and our first model, it wasn't built, it was all built on a cash basis, but in a rental model, I definitely recommend some lever. I think that 50% is really conservative. 67, you could, you know, 60, 70 you could do, and that just juices it, and a lot of people do that. Like some people push 80, 90, but I feel like as soon as there's a 10, 15% market reset, you're really close to the line. Mm -hmm. I personally think that being relatively conservative isn't a bad thing, so 50, 60% lever. Um, that means it gives you, you know, double your buying power when you're buying an asset. Maybe you can buy two assets for a million bucks instead of just one. And that will, because your income spread's so high, now your NOI is a little, a little less because you're going to have, let's say, whatever interest rate, $25,000 in interest that year, whatever it could be. Then um, you, you know, you still have a still good NOI. Maybe it's 8 9% now after that. But you're getting a higher return because um, you have less capital in. So and that's a good that. number. And banks generally will lever you up pretty comfortably 50, 60, 70% if you've got some income from another job that they can, you know, they just shows or that your your property's already renting that's got like an improved income income flow. So talk to your own banker to see what they would lever it at. But um, definitely I think it's worth it in the rental space because it just juices your returns and it's still pretty conservative. And also, um, yeah, I feel you're like talking a lot. So. <laughs> like, oh no, I love it. That's all like, good. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Like, <laughs> get, get water. Like I don't want you to, to pass nope, out on I'm me. 
I'm good. I'll, I'll keep jogging. I'll, I'll, I'll drink as we go. We're good. Thank you. Good, good. Um, no, I was going to say, uh, and then what about, what about like uh, vacancy rates? What's a, what's a good industry average to, to look for? Yeah, per, I would say that from an occupancy rate, I look at it just the flip side, the inverse, but 65% is a good overall occupancy rate for a short-term rental. And that's what we base all of our underwriting on when we are looking at the actual rental model. We're in the process of underwriting like a really significant size fund where we could do this at major scale. And we're underwriting at 65%, um, which means there's 35% of bonus money, like 100% pure profit that basically sits in there to grab. We have operated properties in excess of 80%. It's hard to get 85, 90 plus because there's always gaps between short-term rentals. Like you lose three days here and four days here and you need a two-week maintenance block. And so getting 100% um, rental rate is not really realistic, but getting 80% is. But I think if you underwrite your first year at 50% and then your, your second and third years between 60 and 70 is a good number. And if you can hustle that out more, every dollar beyond that, just goes right to your bottom line because your costs are fixed. I mean, maybe your power bill is a little higher, but overall your costs are fixed and you, it's just like pure gravy. And that's where the hustling comes in. And that's to the point you mentioned earlier, if you choose to do the multiple rental platforms, it's more work for, let's say it's a DIY, like do it yourself version, you and your wife, or whatever managing it. But if you manage VRBO, Airbnb, HomeAway and a private rental site, you have multiple channels to get people into your property. And as a result, you have a greater likelihood of filling that thing up. And so that's when I see people get the, like the 20 plus returns, they're getting 80% plus occupancy and they're killing it. If it's really passive, don't expect it to kill because there is competition. Like there's definitely another hundred properties that looks just like yours probably mm -hmm. on the site. So the second maybe best lesson around it is if you're gonna choose to get in this business, you want repeat business and you preferably re re repeat business directly to your site of direct booking to save the booking fees that come along with the various platforms. But if you, this is where your in-residence experience is so powerful. If you do a better job than the next guy, which doesn't take much, and the, most hosts are lazy, to be perfectly honest, like Airbnb, Airbnb hosts or called landlords, they don't go the extra mile. They don't leave you know, bottles of water in the fridge, or they don't leave maybe a, like, a little welcome card upon arrival, or their linens are kind of worn. It doesn't cost anything more to good, uh, you know, like anything material more to make a really nice in-residence experience, but people are just lazy. So if you can do that in yours, when Joe you know, Smith books your property, he's like, this was awesome. I'm gonna call Sally and tell her to book it and I'm gonna rebook it again for next year. Like anything else, client referrals, it's no different in this business than anything else. So you rely on the platforms out of the gate to get you started and you rely on re return bookings to really make your life easier because now you're not chasing business and then you, and you do another property and you do another one and they will follow you around because they know you're, you're maintaining a consistent standard. As you all know, the Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network, which has incredible podcasts for entrepreneurs, business leaders, people just wanting to upskill themselves. One of my favorites that you need to go check out is My First Million, hosted by Sam Parr and Sean Purry. They have incredible guests, Alex Hermosi, Sophia Amoruso, Hassan Minhaj, all sharing their secrets, how they made their first million, and how to apply their learnings to capitalize on today's business trends and opportunity. Go listen to My First Million wherever you get your podcasts. So how did you build out this business? So you understand the model, you, you've raised some money, and and you are trying to, you in particular, have tried to go for the, uh, I want to own the rental experience. I want people to come to my website to rent. I don't want them going to Airbnb. So you made a, I'm correct in saying that, right? I want to make sure that I'm, 
Go yeah, there's, there's two elements. That's a great point. And this is where a lot of people, um, it gets a little bit confusing. So I'll try to break it down. Phase one was all kind of like a closed loop uh, investor group. So we had 400 investors, 100 million in real estate, 50 properties. We did not rent out any excess time to the outsiders. It was almost like a private club environment of equity owners. Oh, okay. Then, yeah, so that's where uh, people look at us and say, oh, I'd love to rent your places. They're actually owned exclusively by this co-ownership group, and they are effectively rented um, to this the like the members of this group, the co-owners of this group. Since then, so second iteration of Luxus in the next seven years, we did launch some luxury rentals, and they would be in the really the ultra high-end space. Tuscany, Rancho Mirage, Hawaii. And this is where we applied the model I've been talking about and the idea of like, you know, how do you, do you list them privately, publicly? And we would do a blend, but we would always, it works better in the luxury space to be perfectly honest. And I would say luxury, mid-luxury and up, so one million and up, where you have your own private booking site. It takes time to build a brand and maintain that brand, like on social media and, uh, and through um, the website and keeping things up to date. But if, you can, if you're in for the long game, it can pay for itself significantly because those bookings come directly to you and you save 5 to 30% dependent upon what platform you're renting on or distribution channel. And that's money in your jeans for the time that you're spent in. So that's how we've applied that model. And I'll talk later because I think this may be the most, one of the most important parts is around this this rental space. We're also in the development space, but it's a different story. So maybe at the end of the podcast, okay. we'll come back to that. But yeah, the rental wanna, space... And, and, and walk through like how you think through how you build your business too. I want to understand why you went from sure. one version to another to another. Mm. I think that's important. Oh, th thank you for asking. You know what? It's, uh, it's, I've, I've reflected on that lots the past couple of years because people have asked us that because when we actually look at our business holistically, maybe just for the benefit of the, the listeners, we have... Um, three primary divisions. So we have Luxus Canada, Luxus US, and Luxus Italy. And within those divisions, um, we have subdivisions. Um, in Canada, we have the co-ownership model and we have uh, a fishing lodge, which is a whole separate thing. I'll talk about that later. It's like a passion project and it's very cool. And you have then, a lot of, okay, I have to write down notes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, development. The, the, this one's gonna get, this will, when you hear the, it takes me a long time to explain. I'll do it in the two minute version. You're gonna be like, what? No, no the F. No no, no, it's uh, it it is kind of wild. So it's um, <laughs> even when I say it, I kind of laugh at myself because I'm like, how do we get this? Maybe I'll preface it by saying that I get distracted. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm not a shiny object chasing butterflies type of guy, but if I see something I like and I see that there's a a, a problem to be solved and a need to be had that no one's doing, I don't. I'm very comfortable with the risk involved of jumping into a very high barrier to entry market and a high barrier to entry product. And I'm not sure why, just you know, everyone has different risk tolerances in their life as entrepreneurs. And, and for me, I feel like we've, um, because we're never playing the quick buck, we've always played the long game, is I, I believe that we could do a service in these particular markets. So what happened after iteration number one, the $100 million, 50 properties, we got into developments. And we started to develop projects and we did something in, um, and I'm jumping around a bit, but I'll, it'll get to the kind of the, the end of the thing is that we developed something in um, three home community in Rancho Mirage, California, Coachella Valley, estate homes. Um, we started a 17 home community on the big island of Hawaii. And then we started a restorations business in Tuscany, Italy. And so, and the restorations business was buying ancient farmhouses and restoring them to become luxury estates for families and, and luxury rentals and other things. So this was like the first, like, people say, why don't you just do one of those? But we did all three in the same two-month time period. And uh, 
I, I definitely went like gray, you know, like during that time. I, I bit off more <laughs> than I could chew. I'll be perfectly honest in hindsight. Um, but I love them all, and they all taught us great lessons in life. And I'll get into one big lesson later around the Hawaii project. But that then snowballed into the fishing lodge developments. We're building a Marriott Hotel on beachfront in Playa del Carmen, Mexico. And then we have a very significant project in Las Vegas right now um, that's kind of been in the news down there that's not on strip. It's an off-strip uh, off residential tower development. And it's, it's stunning. Like, it really is kind of a game changer. We're very, very excited about it. And, but the common thread amongst all of them, people say, okay, well, like Italian restorations and luxury rentals and like Hawaii, Mexico, like what's, what ties us together? So we actually went through this and did this exercise the last couple of years with my teams in the different offices is we have a few boxes we have to check. Number one, it has to be something we love first off. Like if we don't love it, we're never going to be in for the long game. So just don't do it. So we turned down 19 49 projects for every one that we take. Like we do have a good pipeline of opportunities. We pick the ones we really love and feel like we can make a difference. Number two, high barrier to entry. We don't do anything that can create significant competition or there is existing competition to any certain degree. So every project we've done has either been something that's brand new, like literally no one's doing it before, as in no one is like a very, you know, you know, very, very small amount of people or created a differentiated product within a new market. So I don't know if, if you've read, have you read Blue Ocean Strategy before? The book Blue Ocean yeah, Strategy? Of course. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, but that's always difficult because that means that there's no, there's, there's no process. There's no playbook. Nobody knows what to do. So you got to figure it out. Ex exactly right. So if everyone for the listeners, maybe you mentioned before, Blue Ocean Strategy, I changed my life like 10 years ago. We were already in it, but Blue Ocean Strategy for me defined it. It's like, no playbook, no process, no SOPs, no going online to Google to figure out how to start a Tuscany restorations business or how to build a, uh, this in Mexico or whatever it is. So you, but I, I was okay with it because we've done it so many times. We have a playbook to build a playbook, I guess. And so that was number two is like, okay, all of our projects don't have competition, which creates huge stress up front. But once it's built, you have, you effectively like a, 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 a blue ocean, you know, that you have no competition to grow. And then the third thing, um, it was always lifestyle based. So we've, we turned down um, potentially higher margin projects or better financial deals that are in the retail or commercial or residential or multifamily space. Um, because our, our element, like our stick is like is resort residential, like vacation space. We want to bring people to a place of joy and experience and creating memories because when my legacy is left, whatever it might be down the road, I hope that people look back and say, he created fun in my life. You know, it created joy and I had better memories because I bought this place or I stayed at this place or whatever it is. The money's the money, it's whatever. Um, but if you create joy for people, I feel like the money's gonna come to you. So I've always been kind of the long shot. So if, if it checks those three main boxes, then we'll have a serious look at it and then we'll make sure that it can be economically viable and, and so on and so forth. So long-winded answer to get to the Luxus Group as a whole. We got a lot of stuff on the go. We got a very good team, a very lucky independent managers for each of the divisions and, and they've done a great job, but um, it came through a lot of stress and, you know, you know you know, near the edge of, of failure many times in order to get to that, get to that point. And that's, I guess, so that's how you, so that's how you decided, that's how everything you've taken on, that's the lens that mm -hmm. you look at everything through. Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, yeah, exactly. It's not necessarily like right by any means, but for us it works. And okay. So as you're, you know, lessons learned as you're building this out, as you're growing your team and mm -hmm. 
I, I know now how you, you find the, the investors to get on board, but the team mm -hmm. growth and the fact that you're going to new markets and you're asking people to do things and find out things and figure out things that have literally never been done. What are mm -hmm. lessons that you've learned hiring the people that can actually do this? You know, I, I've, uh, again, a great, a really good question. You do this for a living, don't you? Ask great questions. Yeah, I, I you, do, I you've do, done this I once do before. Once, once before. <laughs> I, yeah. I know, legitimately, it's a great question. It's, um, and we actually have this part of our hiring protocol because we've made mistakes in hires where, particularly in our business, because it has this unique, like, romance around it, like, oh, you travel the world, and they're, they're doing, they're in Italy and all these different places, but it's not for everyone. I don't say the faint of heart isn't the right word. It, you need people to have, like, an entrepreneurial bug they want to be in an entrepreneurial business, but don't want to be an entrepreneur. So all of our team members, whether it's accounting or concierge or asset management or leadership, now we select and we actually profile people before they before they come in around, do they have a, like a, a ability to change hats, to operate in, uh, with without all the facts? And when the ability to be like, I trust the, the business model or the uh, maybe not the business model, the visionary behind it and the leadership team and the idea to be like, I don't know what they're gonna do next, but it's probably gonna be pretty cool. And I'm comfortable changing this hat to this hat to this hat to get there. And every time I've hired someone because I liked them and I think was kind of caught up in the, they were caught up in the romance of it and maybe with me with them in terms of being a really good, like to bring in like military style structure, our business isn't built for it. In the sense that we do have incredible structure and really great discipline, but not to the point that we can run like, um, an, an apple or something like maybe apples the wrong mm -hmm. example because they've done lots of things but the idea that like we're we're doing the same thing completely repetitive every single time is we're not we create new like projects the assembly line the assembly the, the assembly line business model it's not that exactly right exactly so i'd say that for anyone listening that it's like is you know is an entrepreneur and is looking for to build team members around a business that's maybe like ours in the sense that your future isn't perfectly clear. You just know you're gonna to continue to build products and divisions online. They're gonna add value to your client base. I like to try to pick people that be like, that find that are, are have this entrepreneurial mindset themselves, but don't want to be an entrepreneur. They don't want the risk, but they like the feeling of the, of the change. They like the feeling of the uncertainty that comes a little bit um, when you are starting something new. And I only give them 20% of what they need out of the gate because they just take this idea that me or my team, my partner might have, and then it's their job to run with it from 20% to 100%. Most people are get it at 80 or 90% and they got to take it to 100%. So I've team members have come out that, that need 80 to 100% have not been successful here and I haven't done them a service. But so now we try to hire people that are comfortable taking things like the best people we have, I say the best is the wrong word, the, um, the people who find the quickest success are the ones that can literally just hear the conversation, take notes, come back and then circle back with the questions to get clarity as they go along and that, mm -hmm. and they found the most successful in our organization because they're comfortable without a certain degree of uncertainty. Is there a question that you ask in the interview process? Like what's the, I, so now it makes sense. Like the people mm -hmm. make sense, but how do you actually solve, like how do you find that out before you've worked with them for six months? It, it's hard. It's, it's not a perfect science. We do a combination of, um, Colby profile. If you ever use Colby and we have another thing called uh, print, which is basically a version of the, uh, Oh, I can't remember um, the the numbers, the four numbers. I can't remember the name of what's actually called like, now. Like a, we, like a disc profile, or is it like uh, a disc it's not profile? disc? It's the um, it's got the the long word. What's it called now? The uh, anyway, Alfred. It's print for us. You can Google print and then Colby, and it tells you if you're a quick start, 
or you're a fact finder. Colby's the best one we use because a fact finder is someone that needs all the facts before they can go. And a quick start is someone that is like shoot from the hip, kind of like me. So I would have a, I'd be a low fact finder, very high quick start. So we try to find people that aren't exactly like me. We don't want all that. It's not successful either, but someone that has a mix. If they're 100% fact finder, for example, in this profiling, they, they may have a place here, but probably for more mature business units where they can add a level of sophistication to something that's already existing for many years. But for people that are on like the special project and new stuff, they need to have a strong degree of quick start and be comfortable only having partial facts. So you could do Colby is K-O-L-B-E is that profiling. And then the second thing we do is we just, we do lots of interviews. My team interviews, they have different teams. We do a coffee interview, casual environment, strict environment. We do some profile testing like, um, or uh, pardon me, situational testing and really take them through, you know, the, for their own benefit. And we explain there's a reason why we have this process. We want you to be successful. Like that's our number one goal. And the first couple of meetings are always so fun. Oh, of course it'd be great. I'll work so hard. It's going to be so easy. And I would love to do that. And then they realize quickly that they, they're not finding the success or traction because we haven't set them up for success. That's on us as a person that's hired them. So we do a lot more of those conversations. And then finally, of course, reference checks. I used to look at reference checks as like a, as just like a check the box. We use that now as like a tool. And we ask them the same questions. What would happen if there was change in the environment? Or what happens if there was uncertainty you know, quarter to quarter? How have they reacted in the previous role? So then the, the person you're asking them doesn't feel bad about giving them a bad or good reference. They're actually getting quality, quality information rather than their experience that we can use to assess to determine the fit. So I, I never did a good job for my first decade on reference checks. Now it's, it's like a critical tool to determine whether or not that person is going to be successful in our company. That's so interesting because everybody who I've ever spoken to says reference checks are outdated. And of course, they're going to be good because they're going to give you the people that oh, are going to you know, sing the highest praises of this person. So you <laughs> yeah. still double down on them. You still, and, and you still talk to the people that they give you. We do because it's um, the thing we, we know that if they put someone on there, they're going to give a good one. But what usually most people have is not a conversation like we're having. Hey, I'm calling about Joe. He, he's in hire. What do you think of Joe? Oh, Joe was great. You know, uh, well, why'd he leave? Oh, you know, it just wasn't a fit at the time. It's always like that. Instead, we asked him probing questions like, hey, like, was there a time like when we did, or we're doing this in our company? Like, did you do something similar in your company? And then they go, yeah, we did. And then it's like, well, how'd Joe react on that? Oh, well, you know, to be honest, actually, Joe kind of struggled a bit. Like, you really have to knock down the barrier of the HR department, or hopefully yeah. you get the actual direct leader of that person. And then they're not actually throwing the person under the bus. You're actually getting really good, honest information. Sometimes it's pure cheerleader. There's nothing you can get out of them that's going to be valuable. In fact, probably the majority of the time, but then you'll get some really great nuggets from someone that you've opened them up and not the standard 10 questions everyone asks. Would you rehire Joe? You know, everyone asks those things. You have to get into like a conversation with that reference to try to get them to open up on like situational examples around that's specific to your business. That's where we found value in the reference checks uh, as of late. And we usually always ask for one or two more because the first three are always the low-hanging fruit. Can you know what? I don't want to talk to your uncle. Can you talk to, I want like your <laughs> fifth-tier reference. And sometimes they're hesitant to give that. But we tell them, they're like, we're not looking for a reason not to hire you. We're looking for a reason to find out if you're going to be successful in this role. And usually the, the hiree that we're interviewing is a little more open when they hear it through that lens. Most of them are just want to get the jobs. So they're putting their best foot forward. When they hear, we want you to be successful, and this is a tool to help us understand your level of success, they're like, oh, well, you know what? How can I 
how can I disagree with that? And it, it helps yeah. the person, especially a more mature individual that's maybe not like their first or second job, someone's more of a career person. It's like, well, you know what? I don't want to go down a road I'm not going to be successful in anyway. So I may as well just give them honest references and honest feedback um, so that I get put in the best position within this company. Um, as, you, as you grew multiple businesses, I want to, I want to focus um, in a second specifically sure. on, on travel real estate and luxury real estate globally. I think it's interesting. But just a general uh, habit question: When you when you start something new, yeah. because you've you've sort of you've shown this repeatedly over your career, you start something new. How do you how do you go into something? How do you learn something new? How do you operate and excel at something? Is it a process that you have? Is it a mindset? Is it a habit? Is it something that you've learned on how to start something that's never been done before and still be successful at that thing? I don't know if it's, um, it's a process so much as it is a um, obsession. Like I think that the only way to become like a leader at something, a legit, and like, like there's, there's leaders and like there's people that like really kick ass at what they do, is the only way is to be obsessed. And so that's why I, I always circle back to the passion and things. So let's just say you, 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 know, you hear something today and you're like, I really wanna give vacation real estate a try. Well, if you don't really like it, you're not gonna really use it, you're not used to traveling, you're probably not going to be good at it. There's probably someone's going to do a better job than you. Doesn't mean you won't make money and maybe be moderately successful. But if you're talking about like disrupting a space or being a, a, a superstar within your own space, you just have to be more passionate than the next guy. And I, I believe like truly, everyone says, well, our, the ultimate equalizer is 24 hours in a day. I believe you're passionate about something like time's infinite. You can dedicate as much time as you want to something you love. Um, if you really love it. And if you don't really love it, you're going to find ways to get out of it. So, cause your brain's always working, right? Your brain's researching, it's thinking, it's searching it. it are you drawn to, you know, social media to see what your buddy's doing in Mexico? Or are you drawn to like real estate statistics or like learning about a market? So when I pick up my phone or I pick up my computer opens up or my books beside my bedside table, it's all stuff that I love. And, uh, so that that's, I think for someone starting it, if you're, if you're not going to be obsessed with it, that's okay. Just expect moderate success to good success. Don't expect to kill it. And uh, killing it, I do believe you got to be like hyper, hyper focused and excited about what you're doing. That's a good, good advice. Um, okay, let's talk about let's talk about vacation real estate. So, what's the sure. like? Why? Why? Why would you do this? Why would you go into this? This seems like understanding different markets, different laws, different ways to finance, different banks, different rules, regulations. It seems like an absolute pain in the ass. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, why would you go into this? What was you were obviously obsessed with it, obviously. But I think the yeah, you best? know what? I think the best thing for someone to do is unless you don't like travel, the reason why I think that I would say everyone, but everyone that has a little bit of money should do one, is because if you and you do it in a place, there's like really important caveat to that. You do one, but you do it in a place you want to travel, at a property you want to travel to. Because at the bare minimum, you're gonna have some amazing experiences with your family. You're gonna to go to the property, and if COVID shuts down, you can go, you know, like when it did for us, we got to go to different properties, they were there empty. Um, and it's like, it was, a, it was a chance to like do something that was really, really quite cool. So the reason why I like us, we take the investment totally out of it, is you're gonna immediately get an extra bonus. Like if you buy Exxon Gas or Amazon, it's not, fun watching your stock market go up and down. There's no like passion around that. But if you own a piece of vacation real estate, one, just going back to one, uh, you get a chance to use it. 
hey, I need to get away for the weekend. Our place in Fort Lauderdale or Vero Beach or Miami or the Keys is open. Let's go down there for the weekend. Like that has an immediate, not just emotional benefit, which I think is the most powerful thing because you're creating memories with your family, but has a financial benefit because you don't have to go rent something else now to go rent a hotel or a VRBO or somewhere else. So immediately what I think I, I tell people is buy one. Then you'll know, then there is the hassle of the renting. You have to determine if you're up for the challenge and how much money you want to make. Do you want to hustle your tail off and make 15 to 20% or you just want a passive income stream enough to cover costs? Totally up to you on what's kind of right for you and the time you have to commit to it. But even if you put the money in, broke even on costs and you got a whole bunch of free vacations, that's pretty damn good reason to buy one. And then maybe you find that you kind of like it, so you buy two. Now, if you're a sophisticated investor, looking to buy dozens, like I do a whole separate podcast on that. We're in the process of that. That's a, it's a much bigger conversation because you buy a hundred places. You're not going to a hundred places a year. It's, it's a, it's a specific financial play that I personally believe. And I think we have data to support it. It's going to have a remarkable run the next decade. Um, so we're going heavily into that space, uh, like more so than we are now. Um, but most people are just like, okay, let's just buy one, you know, $1, $1 million property that just don't buy something because your buddy likes it or your dad likes it or your dog likes it, it does because you and your children and your wife love it because then you worst case scenario you're going to have a ton of fun and that's pretty awesome in an investment to my mind no it's a, it's, a, it's a good it's okay so i love yeah the the uh there's no excuse as to why not get started at least like it. this is the story of the one as a maintenance engineer he hears things differently to the untrained ear everything on his shop floor might sound fine but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Thank you so much, Indeed, for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're gonna ditch the busy work and you're gonna use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed, doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Yeah. Realistically, if you know you have your primary residence, but it makes sense. Um, but when yeah. you're doing it, it's stressful for people that have never done it before because of all the things that like I, I'm going through it right now, like all the things that you think about, okay, if I'm going to buy a home in even the U S or, or Canada, it's not mm -hmm. that stressful. I'm sure I can figure it out, but if I'm trying to buy a home overseas or if I'm trying to buy mm -hmm. a home in any country that I'm not familiar with, yeah. what's your process for understanding, navigating, making sure you don't get screwed 
uh, with local laws. You know what? That was a, a total unintentional tee up for me on something. So thanks, thanks for bringing that on. But I, and you literally have no idea. This is not even. It was totally unintentional. But one thing we are doing now is actually an advisory part to our business, and we haven't marketed it at all. Like these are literally the first conversations we've had. And what we found over the last 15 years is people come to us naturally looking to say, "Hey, Steve, I'm looking to buy in Italy. I'm looking to buy in Mexico. Like, can you give me the quick rundown of what I should be looking for?" So um, my first foray into social media has come via YouTube channel, and I will do a shameless self-plug here to everyone listening. I would really, really, really appreciate it because I only have like six followers right now, like seven, <laughs> maybe my mom and her best friends is uh, maybe a couple more than that. But we'll it's, get you uh, some followers. We'll get you yeah, some. Yeah, give we'll me some followers. Some. I need to subscribe to it, and all it is is a channel of education. So I'm basically taking the 15 years of education we had and everything we learn every day, 15 to 30 minutes, you know, clips about education on different tools, how to run an Airbnb, how to buy in a certain market, how to tips to buy when selling, when buying everything else. So I would say, honestly, if anything, and not that I'm the best at it, there's probably lots of really good people at this. We haven't found a lot of people that are sharing the vacation space education, but go to that first. If you find that it gives you a tidbit of information, what our advisory arm is, is a direct connection to our team here. And they, let's say, okay, I wanna buy in Mexico. I'm looking at the Mine Riviera or, or Cabo or whatever it might be. We'll get you started on a path of your checklist of things to ensure you do so you don't miss. Like take our 15 years of successes and failures and mistakes, combine it into this package. And it's and now here's the thing, as of right now, it's free, uh, which sounds kind of crazy, but we're doing it is that I'm, uh, we get a referral fee if you end up buying a property. So we get a, and as a standard thing that exists across all realtors do it around the world. If I refer someone as I'm a realtor, we don't actually represent people on deals. We just refer them. I would refer you to the top person in Cabo, the top person in Contra Mirage, people we've worked with for years that we trust. You're going to get a way better experience than calling someone out of the blue. And in the event you buy, we would get a referral fee. So it's this compensation vehicle where you basically get this information for free. So I'd say the versus going down the road of explaining everything, go to the YouTube channel, check it out. It would mean a lot to me. It'd be like the, the best thing someone could do for me is check it out, subscribe, share. And then of course, if you're like, hey, I actually want to do buy a piece of real estate, you'll see all the information on there. Advice at Luxus Group, ping us, and we'll help get you in the right direction via a process that we've literally just created the last eight, 10 weeks. And it's been a lot of fun. We helped probably, I don't know, a couple dozen people on their path to buying real estate on, and different places around the world. And I'm helping someone in Italy right now buying Tuscany. And he had no idea where to start. He just knew that he wanted to be in Tuscany, Italy. And in like literally two weeks, he's totally set up. He's got an offer on a property. He's got banks he's talking to. It would have taken him hundreds and hundreds of hours and probably never would have got it done. It took us three or four hours because we've done it so many times. Yeah. So in any event, we'd be honored to help people on their journey. It's part of our mission is to help people be more educated and informed in the space. And that's how we're doing it. Good. No, I love it. Okay. So I'll, I'll leave people to check out the YouTube for that. Cause I'm assuming yeah. finding the property, finding the talent that's actually going to help you yep. sell it, buy it, the management of it. Like that's all a massive, I, we should probably, probably mm -hmm. chat after the call and I'm <laughs> sure gonna, I'm going to yeah. probably tap into this, uh, not, Please. not yet launched advisory service. So <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's literally, you'll see it on there. We just, all those things we talk about it is I'm trying to do weekly content. That's kind of my yeah. way to, I don't know, give back a little bit and hopefully I don't expect to make any money on it. I just wanted to be, we have like three people in the payroll that are specifically dedicated to this. I just wanted to break even. I'd be super happy and hopefully just help more people. So it'd be my honor to help you or anyone in the group. And it's, um, 
The Luxus Group. I know you'll put it probably in the show notes yeah, or whatever, sure. but um, uh, the YouTube channel is The Luxus Group, and Luxus is L-U-X-U-S group, uh, group. So please check it out. That would mean the world to me, and it's, it's fun helping people on their path. Amazing. Um, okay, so the last, I guess the last question, I want to do some rapid fire, but the last question sure. that I really have for this is um, th things that you wish you knew about real estate when, when you started, that if somebody's starting now, what are like the top three to five things that you should say, this is what you should worry about first? Good question. I think if I was, I'll break it into two sections. If I'm looking at like um, uh, real estate in general and vacation property real estate, I would have a better understanding of financing. I was very immature in understanding financing early in the career and we are still getting to a point of sophistication now, but how are you going to finance it? Bank, capital partners, legal structure, like there's so many different ways to do that. And it's, it's actually, it's not horribly complicated, but one little mistake along the way can cost you substantially and cost you your entire first year's profit by, by making a mistake. So I think that would be probably number one in the sense of just understanding what your structure and options are. And again, we put some videos on some of that. Number two though, actually maybe number two should be number one is finding the right agent. And I am so deeply passionate about this because every agent in the world says they're the best agent in the world. And listen, I don't wanna knock it. it Agents are their own entrepreneurs. Like everyone has a dream and a passion for it. But the reality is, especially when you're getting to the mid-luxury up sp upper space, is there are only a select few in the markets that are really the best. Particularly in a hot market today, you're buying stuff with against multiple offers or on the same day it's being released. So if you want to actually compete in a bid or beat it to market, you need the agent who's already sold 50% of the inventory in that particular market because they can door knock, they can, they can match make. So I'm really passionate about, it doesn't mean it's always experienced brokers. Sometimes they're new to the space, but they're hustlers and they've, they, they're part of a firm that has access to the clientele. I'm a big fan and that's where we probably are number one thing that we could add the most value, which is like literally like five seconds of work for us. I wanna go to Fort Lauderdale, I wanna go to the keys, I want to go here, perfect. Here's the top three people, top two people, top one person in these markets and we make a connection. If you try to yellow page it or Google best agent, these guys are all good at managing the algorithms and the Google clicks. You're probably not going to get the best person. And in today's market, it's so hot that most agents aren't even returning phone calls. And mm -hmm. so that's where I think we could probably do the, the, um, the most important aspect is finding. I wish I knew that earlier on we had, unfortunately, a lot of bad agents. And that's not the right word. They didn't mean ill will. Um, but they're hunters, you know, it's, it's an eat what you kill uh, space. And so they're more about making the deal happen than necessarily really, really understanding my needs and the needs of our business. And we, as a result, took several multi six figure hits because of not having the right information at hand. So that's, that's why I want people to have my back, my true best yeah. interest. They take the time to understand it. So that would be it. And then development space it's very similar understanding like if you're building your own home or your own community or something that's a bigger conversation but it's really understanding the capital stack like the whole financial structure of equity mezzanine debt if you have it you know conventional debt because that's what makes and breaks a project overall and uh, again we were very immature early on in that and we thought we we knew it all we didn't and we learned hard and we took a lot of stress and and um, we've now are a lot smarter at it but don't make those mistakes you know become educated in that space before you start that's no, it's great advice. Um, I, you know, I don't know much about the development side, but just I, I'm, I have friends and, and everybody's trying to buy right now. And I've only ever lived in hot markets and Toronto mm -hmm. and, and now South Florida. And yeah. uh, you, you, you see it in New York and LA where I've, I have family that's lived. And um, 
it's like the cash offers coming in and the the mm. amount over appraisals coming in so you're not even getting finance even if you wanted to like it's just yeah. insane so it's like you know who you need you need people that have too much deal flow that don't need to close stuff and those are the people <laughs> that are going to be helping you the most because if they if they need to close up if they need to literally close a deal to pay rent or to pay their mortgage yeah. like they're not going to be giving you the best advice so you need somebody that has too much it's exactly right because there's, and I don't blame them. Like, I mean, we've all been in tight financial positions. I close this deal, it's $10,000. It pays the mortgage this month. So you're just trying to get the deal across the finish line. All of our agents that we use, I'd say generally are financially independent. Like they don't need your deal or anything. They're doing it for the reason of providing the best value because they're in it for the long game. And as a result, like you said, so much deal flow. They're like, you know what, Steve, don't take that deal. There's like six yeah. other bids on it. You're going to overpay it's not worth it. We'll wait three or four or five more months for another deal to come up. Like, perfect. Thanks for the honest advice because I'm relying on you to give me good advice. If you said go for it, I just would have overpaid. Yeah. And I think that's a huge difference for someone that's just trying to get their own deal flow going. And really, I, I've used overused long game, but I look at everyone, employees, our partners, our realtors, they have to be in it for the long game. If they're in it, for, you know, in it to win it on day one, then I think there's just, I don't know, I think they could set you up for failure. No, very good. Okay, yeah. um, I'm gonna ask a couple rapid fire uh, sure. closing closing thoughts. Like uh, yeah. anything that we didn't go into that you wanted to bring up. So go go into that. But then also, where do people connect with you? So all the social, anything you didn't mention, website, all that. Sure. Um, I think final thoughts. No, I think that was a great coverage. Thank you. It was awesome. I mean, yeah, I, I pleasure, man. happily talk like at a you know at the bigger deal flow stuff when you get to big. But I think it's it's such a, a, a smaller threshold. But it's it's fun talking about building a big hotel and a big community and there's some unique things, but I think covered very, very well. It was a lot of fun today. As far as, um, uh, remember, I think maybe one piece of advice, you know, or, or maybe not advice experience for anyone is like, and I have people tell me this, everyone tells you this, but I'm telling you as well, don't be afraid of failing. Like it is so a part of the process of life and building a business. And I was so afraid of failing and I felt like it was such a horrible thing. Um, that I never really learned until I started to fail more often. And I don't take it lightly. It's every time it's a heavy weight to carry, especially if you're managing investors' money or whatever it could be. But be prepared to die in that mountain along with them, like in the sense of like getting the deal done, whatever it could be. But don't let a fear of failure prevent you from following your dreams. I just, people have told me that. It's on every Instagram meme, but like it's, it's still so important. And hearing it, like all this gray hair here is from like, failing along the way, but that's created this environment that we live in now that's really special and we're very excited and blessed and excited about the future. So just wanted to share that. As far as following me, um, the YouTube channel, so the Lexus Group, uh, search that on. Think of Lexus but with a U. I am on Instagram. Don't expect much like major revelations on Instagram for me. It's kind of family photos. You'll, you'll, and it, you'll go, you'll go there eventually. I'm, yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll wait, I'll wait for it. I'll wait for it. I, You're going to get there. I probably will. I'm, I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting applied pressure and that's just my name. So Stephen Potaski. And then I do do a little bit more active on LinkedIn. I say a little bit like a tidbit a week. Um, and then, but the, the big thing, I just, like I said, I'm not very good at it. I haven't, I have to get better at it. So you're inspiring me, Scott, today to do better awesome. at social, social part of the brand awareness. Yeah. Listen, uh, the man, Lexus Group wanna... is our website. Go to our, go Lexus to our website. Group, yeah. You can learn more about it. That's all being rebranded right now. So the next couple of months that you're going to see some improvements, but it does give you a bit of sense of what we do. Amazing. And if you ever want to, if you ever want to talk shop about social, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here, man. I'm here. Well, let's um, trade services because I would love to. I would so yeah. appreciate it because it's, uh, 100%. I'm, uh, I'm amateur hour over here. <laughs>
No, I'll get you up to speed. It's not that hard. It's just consistency, <laughs> and you have to build process to create stuff every single day. And once you have that process down, it's like, it's it's very simple. Okay, um, okay. make it sound simple. I find it hard, but I trust you. We'll do it. <laughs> yeah, we'll do it. All right, let's do a couple of rapid fire things. Sure. Uh, rapid fire questions. So, um, you've had an incredible career, not traditional career, but you've had you've built incredible businesses. But what Thank keeps you. you up at night now? Yeah, no problem. Um, probably biggest thing now for me is um. I would, I maybe as recent as the last few months is regulation. Like the whole, it's just been a change. Like COVID's changed so much regulation in the business in terms of like Airbnbs and like when law, government, because we do things that are very unique, they're not necessarily laws built around them. Um, and they, but laws are formed around these big disruptions like that Airbnb has done to the business. So for me, for so long, I was like, what's the government going to do today? You know, are they going to change the laws and how we run our portfolio or how they tax our, our thing? So I, for me, that was a, a, a big chunk of my, I guess, it's, it's sort of your control. You can't influence what uh, a government's going to do to, like, uh, the extent that you're going to make a meaningful change. But it's, um, for me, that was, that was hard for a lot of years, especially the last five years and, and then COVID in the last two years. So that would probably be the biggest one. And then, you know, number two, just making sure that we're doing the best by our investors. Every day, if you bring outside capital in, it's even though I think we do well and we're good stewards of that capital, I think about it every day, like every single day. How do you do better by your investors? And if you take money from someone else, you should the same. And I think it's really is something you really got to think hard about doing. And if you're going to do it, be prepared to think about it night and day and lose sleep over it because you want to do best by them as they put their trust in you. So that's something that still keeps me up at night. Um, if you had to pick one challenge, the, the biggest challenge you've overcome in your life, it could be personal, professional, what was it? How'd you overcome it? What'd you learn from it? The project in Hawaii was the biggest business challenge we ever had, which did affect family, kids, wife. Like it was such a monumental like, um, issue. And the biggest challenge was the, bit, the, the model itself was already struggling and then a volcano erupted <laughs> in oh, the middle geez. of this whole project. So like, that's not normal by any nope. means, but <laughs> so it, uh, it definitely put some serious strain on the project. And um, what I learned from that though, is that you need to have not just plan B, but plan C, D, E. And we only had plan A and plan A plus, like we didn't have enough backups. So my learnings from that without going down that rabbit hole was that don't rely on just the best outcome. You gotta rely on outcome 0.1, 0.2, 0.3 to make sure you have multiple paths. Because again, a lot of people think blind spots don't happen. In two years, I had a volcano erupt, and two years later, COVID hit. Two things that are completely unpredictable, and we didn't have really good backup plans. And you can't have an eventual or plan for every eventuality, but you can have um, backup capital, backup partnerships, backup strategies to manage blind spots. And I think now our team was way, way, I'm personally way better at um, managing blind spots um, because we're just better prepared and better resourced to manage them. And um, I think that when you start a business, sometimes you just don't know what you don't know and you got to feel the pain in order to understand it. But um, as you feel it, you don't want to feel it again. <laughs> so you start to get a little yeah. smarter how to manage it. If you had to choose one person, obviously there's been many, but pick one person who's had an incredible impact on your life. Who was that person? What do they teach you? I would say, uh, you know, I would do the obvious first, my dad. He's like, you know, just so good having an entrepreneur in your life. My mom and dad, they're just amazing people. And just always there for you, like with huge support on everything. And just, just taught so many good life lessons. Um, it's been very, very, you know, just very powerful and influential. And will always be the rest of my life. And I've had another mentor that helped me out at a time of dark, difficult times in our business. And uh, one of the nicest humans, human beings I know. And... Uh, 
he obviously saved me. It was kind of a white knight scenario in terms of how they helped. He did very well in the deal and like everything else, but it was amazing having a, a mentor like that they could lean on. And I feel like everyone should have a mentor in their life or a couple because it's amazing when you're in a time of need how someone can really step up and help you emotionally or financially or spiritually or whatever it might be. And so build a mentor network, and I'm fortunate to have several, but, but those two would be the biggest impact in my life. If you had to pick a book or a podcast or some, some resource uh, that you'd recommend people go check out that's had an impact on your life? Um, your podcast now, for sure, obviously. <laughs> Everyone should follow it. Wait, they already all do listen. So, okay, another one. Um, Blue Ocean Strategy, I mentioned earlier. It's the simplest read ever, but I've read it several times. I still always pull out nuggets. And podcasts for me, actually, I probably go with... Uh, I like, you know what, I like, I love health podcasts, um, the Huberman Lab, Andrew Huberman, yeah. or Sean Stevenson, The Model Health Show. I'm like obsessed with consuming um, health-related stuff because I feel like the ultimate success in life comes from energy, and if you have good energy, as in like physical, mental energy, you can do a lot more in your life. And I found like, I love, I love geeking out on sleep and geeking out on nutrition and fitness, and so those ones have provided like science-based stuff. So those podcasts have been Dr. David Sinclair, it's like anti-aging, I kind of like those health nerds. I'm like a okay. wannabe health nerd. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. Man, you're, you're in good shape. You're, you're doing fine. But all the, <laughs> but I've listened to some of those too as well. They're good. They're, yeah, they're, they're good. Yeah, health, is sure. like a, health is like, like always like a, a passion of mine, even if it's not sure. the main business thing, right? I think it's a, I think, I, love when you, it. I think, I think, listen, when you have a great family and you have a great life and you, and things are going well, I think health is more top of mind than, than, than when things mm -hmm. aren't going well, because you don't want that to end. So I yeah. think with COVID and whatnot, um, I think you're. I think people are very cognizant of, of their own health and well-being, and they're and they're very aware of their own mortality as well. I think that. I agree. Yeah. I yeah. could go down that rabbit hole some other time. We can, you and I yeah. can have a banter about the health stuff, but I'm just obsessed with that stuff. I just find it so Good. interesting. You just get so much out of it. Dude, I know we could do a lot of shows. Well, <laughs> well I'm telling you, you come down to Florida, we grab a beer. It's uh, we'll, we'll we'll do some. I love we'll it. Do some more. I have a studio in Miami, so we can do another one in Miami. Um, Perfect. That anyways, sounds amazing. Yeah. I will I yeah. will be down there this fall, I think. So that would be a fun Good. little face to face. Yeah, you let me know. I'll set it up. Um, love it. Love it. Okay, if you could tell your 20 year old self one thing, what would it be? Don't sweat the small stuff. Sounds like such a cliche, but it literally has consumed so many good moments in my life by sweating the small stuff. And I think we sweat the, we sweat the small stuff as entrepreneurs, which is make us successful. So it's kind of like conflicting. It's because we sweat those things, we've actually created success, but not to the point of consuming your mental energy and everything else. And it's, it's so hard, but I still personally drive myself into, I don't wanna say dark places, but harder places because it's of things that I would look back 20 years later and be like, why? <laughs> why are you worried about that? And uh, I'm getting better. I'm working through it all the time. Um, it's probably helped create my success in life, but I'm, I'm excited to move on from sweating some of those immaterial small things in life. So hopefully people could take that for some good value. Uh, and then uh, last question, what does success mean to you? Success is freedom, I think. It's, for me, it's, uh, it's never been about the money. And we've had lots of good years and lots of really bad years. And so it's, if I was really about the money, and it's, it's like the, the freedom to do what we want to do, to create a greater impact in the world and in our life, in my family's life, my kids' lives, my wife, myself. So without freedom, whether it comes through financial resources or good health or a good circle of people or a good community, um, 
I just I feel like that's just hard to achieve what ambition is in life. So for me, it is creating freedom to do more, not just to golf more or have more. It's really just to do more in life. So I do want to golf a bit more as I get older, but it's a get back at it. But um, I think that would be the success to me. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.